You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso. Care what you think about him. Many conservatives were seething over Justice Neil Gorsuch's opinion in the landmark LGBT rights case this term. Some even publicly rebuked Gorsuch. After his second landmark opinion, affirming Native American rights in Oklahoma, there were comparisons with Justice David Souter, a George H.W. Bush nominee who became a reliable member of the court's liberal wing. But perhaps there's another justice that Gorsuch might be better compared with. Justice Byron White, who was not concerned with public perception or criticism. Gorsuch described White as his legal hero during his confirmation hearings. Byron White, my mentor, a product of the West. He modeled for me judicial courage. He followed the law wherever it took him, without fear or favor to anyone. Joining me is Kimberly Strawbridge-Robinson, Bloomberg Law Supreme Court reporter. Kimberly, tell us about Gorsuch's connections to Justice White. So Justice Byron White was from the West, as is Justice Gorsuch. Both take a lot of pride in being Westerners. Justice White was actually the only other justice from Colorado, along with Justice Gorsuch. And Justice Gorsuch clerked for Justice White, and he actually served in the Byron White Courthouse for over a decade as an appellate justice on the Tenth Circuit. So the connections between the two justices are pretty extraordinary and pretty strong. And Justice Gorsuch has said that Justice White was a personal hero of his. And he has a bust of him in his office at the Supreme Court? That's right. Apparently, somebody found the bust and asked Justice Gorsuch if he wanted to um, present it in his chambers, and he took them up on it. So it's sitting there, and he sees it every day that he's in his office. Gorsuch is a textualist, but White wasn't. How are their approaches to law similar, if they are? Well, they're not really. Their approaches to the law are really worlds away. But what stands out is some of the ways that they view the justices' jobs. And so both White and Justice Gorsuch are big proponents of separation of powers and believers in you know, elected officials, and that courts should generally stay, as Justice Gorsuch has put it, in their lanes and leave a lot of the disputes that courts are asked to weigh in on to the political branches. So that's one way in which they're alike. And another way, which has become pretty important for this term, was that neither really cared about their public image. Justice Gorsuch famously wrote in his recent book that Justice Waste didn't, quote, give a fig about what other people thought. And You know, we see that really playing out in Justice Gorsuch's opinions about LGBTQ workers and also the tribal jurisdiction case that you mentioned. Those really have some very big implications, and Justice Gorsuch didn't seem to care. Did he respond at all to any of the criticisms in any way? No. So I was talking um, with some of his clerks for the story that I wrote, and many of them said he just doesn't care you know, he's going to move on with his life. He's going to write the opinion, put a lot into it. But then after that, he's not going to read what commenters are saying. That's just not how he chooses to spend his time. Instead, he'd rather spend time with his family and worrying about being outdoors, not worrying about what the public is saying about him. He wrote after Justice White's death, and he said his tenure on the bench was characterized by an utter indifference to partisan agendas. So you think that Gorsuch as well has an indifference to partisan agendas? 
Well, that certainly seems to be the case. We see Justice Gorsuch, this is the only time since he's been on the court where he's crossed over and joined his more liberal colleagues in closely divided cases. And although a lot of his rulings will tend to lean conservative based on how he approaches the law, you know, I get the sense from talking to his clerks and people who know him well that he's not motivated by getting to conservative outcomes. But that's just kind of naturally where his jurisprudence will often lead him. Many conservatives criticized him when he joined the liberals and Justice Roberts in protecting LGBT workers from job discrimination. But they also criticized the fact that he used textualism to get to that decision. Right. So both the majority and the dissent claimed that their reading of the statute was true to textualism. And we really saw quite a robust debate between Justice Gorsuch and Justice Alito in dissent about which justice was actually following textualism. And we saw there that another one of Justice Gorsuch's mentors, Justice Scalia, was being invoked. He was really the leader of the textualist movement. And, you know, Justice Alito said that Justice Scalia would not have come to the same conclusion that Gorsuch did. Well, when Gorsuch was nominated and confirmed to the bench to fill Justice Scalia's seat, Many thought that because he was a textualist and a conservative, that he would follow Justice Scalia's jurisprudence. Has he done that? Well, I guess it depends on who you ask. We did see Justice Scalia a few times in his career cross over and join his more liberal colleagues, just like Justice Gorsuch is doing, particularly in criminal law cases. I get the sense that Justice Gorsuch may be doing it more often But there are some differences in their jurisprudence, even though they both follow textualism. And we'll just have to see really where that leads Justice Gorsuch in the future. I will say that one thing that is similar about Justice Scalia and Justice Gorsuch is that they both seem very self-assured and confident in their place as a justice. Justice Scalia was a conservative icon and very gregarious. And he showed that on the bench. And you write that Gorsuch is more like Scalia than White in how he displays his self-confidence and assurance. Tell us about Gorsuch interrupting the Chief Justice early in his time on this court. Right. So this is one kind of example that has always stuck with me about, you know, how Justice Gorsuch does really feel pretty assured and confident in his position. I think it was just his third argument on the bench, the justices were considering a jurisdictional dispute. And Chief Justice Roberts made an offhand comment about, you know, which highway ran through Montana. And Justice Gorsuch interrupted him in the middle of oral argument to say, you know, he had gotten it incorrect. And the Chief Justice made a little quip. But actually, later in the argument, Justice Gorsuch had to interrupt again to say that he'd actually gotten it wrong and that the Chief Justice was right. And it just stuck with me as, you know, somebody who is a newbie on the bench, we tend to expect them to kind of lay low and get the lay of the land. And that was not Justice Gorsuch's approach to it at all. I remember that specifically and thinking, he corrected the chief justice so Mm -hmm. soon. (laughs) So it was really a a moment to remember. And I think you're right. It does show his uh, confidence. He wrote a book, and he went on a national book tour, did a television interview. Justice White, you know, was a famous football player and had all this, you know, fame and media attention before he got on the bench. How are Justice White and Gorsuch similar or dissimilar that way? 
Right. So you're right that, um, you know, Justice White uh, was famous before he got on the bench. Um, he's actually one of the few justices who are probably known either more for what they did before they got on the bench or at least as much. Um, but Justice White came to really hate uh, the public attention and really shied away from it as a justice. And that's something that we, we don't really see from Justice Gorsuch. So you mentioned he did go on this, this book tour. And while other justices have done that, particularly, you know, Justices Breyer and Sotomayor, they waited a long time in their tenure um, to, to do so. And, and that has not been the case for Justice Gorsuch. He was just getting ready for his third term whenever he went on um, his book tour and um, has not shied away really from uh, public attention in the way that we saw White doing. Kimberly, did you notice during his book tour, he didn't seem to do as many television interviews as the other justices did when promoting their books? Justice Gorsuch actually did do a number of um, television interviews, but many of them were actually with Fox News. Um, and so that was something that, um, you know, as, as a journalist, I noted a lot. Um, and so it may have seemed like he didn't do a lot of television interviews, but he actually did sit down for a fair number of them. Um, mostly he stuck pretty close to the uh, message in his book. And um, I know from experience did not uh, really go into any other kind of details that journalists were trying to trying to get out of him. You interviewed him for the book. What was his demeanor like? What was he like answering questions? Well, you know, Justice Gorsuch uh, really stuck to the text of his book. Um, there were many um, interviews before uh, ours. I was with our colleague over at Bloomberg News, uh, Greg Store, um, and so we were trying to get him to kind of say something a little different from what he said in the other um, interviews. But he resisted that very strongly um, and really stuck to the message of his book, which was. You know that judges should stay in their lanes and shouldn't, you know, get involved with um, partisan disagreements that should really be left to the other branches of government. In his book, did he talk about his mother, who was the first woman to head the EPA and has quite a remarkable story herself? No, he didn't. But you know, I when I was speaking to people for the story, many of them mentioned that that probably has a lot to do um, with his total um, abandonment of what the public thinks of him. Um, She did have a very contentious um, tenure as the first female head of the EPA, and she ended up being the first cabinet-level member actually held in contempt of Congress. And so, you know, people told me that this experience, um, which happened while he was a teenager in Washington, D.C., you know, really um, kind of got him used to, you know, the, the bitterness of being in public service. What is your takeaway? What is the most important thing to him? Is it judicial independence, textualism, keeping the separation of powers, or something else? I really do think that, you know, what's going to be important going forward is his trust in elected officials and his belief that courts really should be staying out of these disputes and leave it to elected officials, and that the way to correct any problems um, that people have with the laws or policy are to go out and vote and to hold public officials responsible. I think that's going to be a theme that we see a lot um, in his in his, the cases that he addresses in the future, and I think it's going to sometimes lead him to surprising results. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Kimberly. That's Kimberly Strawbridge-Robinson, Bloomberg Law Supreme Court reporter. 
New research suggests that the pandemic has worsened gender dynamics between working parents. Many working mothers now balancing homeschooling and childcare with work carry a heavier childcare burden than fathers during the coronavirus pandemic, leaving them increasingly vulnerable to layoffs and terminations that would be difficult to challenge in court. Joining me is Erin Mulvaney, senior legal reporter at Bloomberg Law. So, Erin, tell us more about this new research. Sure. A recent study um, from Washington University in St. Louis um, is suggesting that the pandemic has worsened gender dynamics between working parents. And what it found was that working moms' hours fell four or five times more than fathers uh, between March and April, which was, you know, basically at that time when the pandemic was hitting, schools were closing, and parents were kind of faced with balancing their work and childcare duties at the same time. And um, so this drop in hours, you know, happened for mothers, but fathers' work hours remained largely stable. And so, and that the impact was greatest among mothers of primary school age children or younger. Does that mean that working mothers are cutting their time by themselves or that their employers are cutting their time? So that's a good question. They don't know the exact reason for the reduced hours, but it suggests that mothers are taking up a disproportionate um, amount of child care duties regardless. So often it might be the case a mother, we, we know anecdotally from some legal experts and the researchers themselves, that a mother may just ask for a few more, you know, hours off in the morning to do homeschooling um, or just having to balance child care as those, those options kind of dried up for younger children or things like that. And, you know, of course, there are probably equal households as well, but the numbers suggest that just by and large, women were the ones picking up, picking up the slack in these relationships where there's a, a mother and a father and they're both working. That's not surprising. It seems like every survey shows the same thing, that working moms are picking up the slack. And it's probably going to get worse because as the school year starts and so many kids are going to be learning online and there are fewer child care options, it may become more obvious to employers. That's exactly right. And it's important to note, too, that this is a, a dynamic that existed before the pandemic that could be exacerbated by the pandemic. Um, and that could lead to pro- maybe a sticky situation where there's a stereotype involved that a mother is more unreliable and a father is reliable, even if that's not fair or based on you know the actual outcome of the mother's work, or even if that's not based on the actual productivity that the mother puts into her job or the company, even if she is kind of in this difficult situation. And I'll also add that You know, a lot of employers were very flexible at the beginning, not knowing how long this would last and maybe had an expectation that when the fall rolled around, school would be back. And so I think a lot of worker advocates fear, you know, there's going to be another reckoning coming at the beginning of school while, you know, these parents have this really difficult balancing situation, maybe for a while now. We don't really know when it's going to end. So it's kind of a, you know, it's a difficult situation to navigate. Erin, are there any states where employers are required to make accommodations for caregiver responsibilities? 
Yes and no. So there are five states, um, as well as the District of Columbia and New York City, that have explicit protections against caregiver discrimination. So that's not exactly what you're asking, but but those states, you if you were discriminated against for being a mother, for example, or even a father, um, you could actually file a discrimination claim in state court. Um, outside of that context, there's not such a protection under federal law. Um, but what you're asking about accommodations for caregivers, an employer doesn't outside of, you know, the paid leave they offer or there's there's an emergency act that Congress put into place during the pandemic that that does provide a national paid leave option for, for mothers. But outside of that, an employer doesn't have to say, yes, you can have that time to care for your child. That's not something that's baked into our system normally. And it's kind of an unfair situation on the face of it, but um, that is the case for, for most parents. They, they kind of face, they do have to do their job, <laughs> you know, unless they take pay leave <laughs> that the company offers. The lawyers that you spoke to, did they say that they're getting calls from working mothers about problems at work? Yes. I, uh, there are already anecdotes coming out about women calling and talking about their legal options and kind of talking through these things that we're talking about right now. Some of the lawyers have told me that. On the company side, I don't think they think in those terms, but from the individual worker point of view, both advocacy groups and plaintiffs' lawyers said that they're getting calls about this type of discrimination, which they said happened, again, before the pandemic, but they're continuing to see these kind of trends come up more frequently. Did the people that you talked to, the sociologists, the lawyers, etc., see implications when employers are looking to cut their payroll that they're going to start cutting the caregivers? There is definitely a fear that a company that's facing legitimate economic insecurity because of the pandemic and because of the crisis that we're in and they might be in, um, looking at their staff and making cuts, whether it's individual or in a mass layoff situation, and maybe subconsciously or, you know, based on a bias or based on actual reduced hours that the employees take, working mothers may be adversely affected by by some of those decisions. That That's absolutely a fear. And the study that we, we noted in the research um, the researchers actually noted that, that they fear that this reduced work hours would would lead to some adverse actions against working mothers. And even in, even in the way of being passed over for promotion in the single guy might get over a working mother, you know, but not based on work, based on an assumption of mothers being unreliable, essentially. If mothers are cutting their hours, it's sort of logical that an employer will consider that, oh, they're not doing their job as well or as thoroughly. That's absolutely an argument that some employers may make. And um, there's there's another point of view on the subject um, that I'll share from some like workers advocates that the reduced hours may not necessarily mean that the mother is doing a bad job either. You know, and some workplaces actually encourage more workplace flexibility that can provide kind of more flexible options for people who are balancing more work. And in this context, of course, that could be a caregiver, be it a mother or a father. And if, if the workplace provides that, which, I, you know, I think a lot of workplaces, especially during the pandemic, were very understanding. Um, but, but 
to your to the broader point, uh, yes, reduced hours could be. There's not, you know, saying I've worked less. They don't. They're not. The employer is not required to make that allowance and say, okay, you're protected from being fired. Then that is not the case in our current legal system. Let's say that some of these working parents decide to take their case to court if they're fired. What would they need to prove? I'll take it in two different scenarios because there are different claims that a this this mother who you know had some kind of action taken against her, whether she's fired or say there's a situation where mostly mothers are laid off <laughs> or something kind of extreme like that, and they're ready to say, okay, this sounds like I can bring a claim to court and say that you discriminated against me. You know, we already mentioned there are some special situations in five states in D.C. and in New York City. Um, outside of that, there's an individual mother who's making this claim. Well, the burden would be on her to, to show that there was a, a reason this is based on a stereotype, among other factors. Um, and the reason that she was laid off or, or fired or laid off was because she was a mother and it was based on an, a sex stereotype. Because that's not legal. You, you can't base a decision based on that. A business can come back and say, well, I've lost, you know, 40% of my revenue. I had to lay people off. There's a good reason to lay this person off. She'd cut her hours by half. And absent a smoking gun that proves that there was stereotype involved, whether it's an email saying, I don't want mothers working here <laughs> or you're unreliable, they would be pretty tough. Um, the, in the other situation where maybe it's a, a policy that the, the company has in place that could potentially hurt a protected class, such as a working mother or, or father or, you know, any kind of person that's called a disparate impact claim. And the plaintiff would say, okay, you have this policy and this, this adverse, this affects me um, in a negative way. And then the employer would have to defend that again with like an economic business necessity reason for having the policy. And that would have to override whatever bias it inflicts. Um, an example way back, there was a Supreme Court case where a company required a diploma to work there. And some, some black employees sued and said that that had a disparate impact on them. So, I, I talked to some lawyers who said they haven't seen any big cases like this yet for working mothers, but what it would look like is something kind of like that. Um, you made us increase our hours by 20% because of the economic conditions and that policy disproportionately affected women and led to stereotypes. That could be a claim that you bring in court. And again, they're just hard. They're just hard cases because you have to prove there's animus involved and you have to prove, and the company will always argue that they have a business necessity um, in some way. I noticed that one of the professors you talked to said, you're walking into a case with facts stacked against you. So, (laughs) So most of the lawyers you spoke to said that these kinds of cases are uphill battles for the working parent. Most of them did. I the the advocates I spoke to, they they would say that litigation is not the best way to have justice in the workplace. You know, they're kind of focused on policy solutions or you know better corporate cultures that support um, all kinds of workers. 
And, you know, the defense attorneys I talked to who represent companies, you know, they, they said, I mean, there's any number of narratives a company can explain to say why they fired somebody or why they let somebody go or why they had to lay off. And the pandemic, really, it provides quite a large you know, blanket for a lot of these things, they really, they might not be able to keep people on staff. And so there's a, there's going to be like an, a baked in economic reason that's pretty in our faces every single day. And so with that said, you know, the, the, the burden is going to be pretty high to reach that, to, to prove that the company did something against you. Even if, you know, a lot, like we talked at the beginning of this conversation, it seems like it's a pretty apparent dynamic that this is happening and it's unfair, but it's going to be really hard. It's going to be a tough sell in court. But there are definitely big plaintiff firms who bring these types of cases all the time. So I don't want to say they, there's no way they can win either. Yeah. Thanks, Aaron. That's Aaron Mulvaney, Bloomberg Law Senior Legal Reporter. I'm June Grosso, and this is Bloomberg.